it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 603 for July 9th, 2019, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Laura Kane, who is a CFA and CPA and head of Investment Themes America for UBS Financial, or is it just UBS Incorporated? Anyway, Laura specializes in something called sustainable investing for UBS. As part of her research, she's written several articles about investing through a gender lens. I've asked Laura to come on and in kind of a mean thing to do, try not to talk about investing at all, but rather what she has discovered about the impact women have on the success of a company through this research in investing through a gender lens. With that preamble and those restrictions, welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you, Allison. Great to be here. All right. Um, So I've read a paper that you wrote on uh, sustainable investing with a gender lens, and I just came up with a whole bunch of questions that I really wanted to kind of dig into. Uh, Let's start kind of back at the beginning. What led you to study investing with a gender lens? Sure. So I would say that the motivation was really twofold. So uh, one, there was definitely the aspect of a personal interest. And the second was Uh, this growing focus within my industry of financial services on the topic of sustainable investing. So on the personal side, um, I had observed in my career in financial services uh, that there was this disconnect between the educational achievements of women and my peers and this frustratingly sparse representation of women in the most senior ranks of financial institutions. And with my kind of investment researcher hat on, I really wanted to understand better why this was and if there was any investment case to be made for having more women in the upper echelons of companies. Uh, To me, just logically going into the project, I could see all these really talented women around me, all of my peers, and you would think that the companies that make the best use of this vast talent pool Uh, might have an edge over the other. So that was kind of my initial uh, line of inquiry. No, you could have found the opposite. (laughs) Yes, of course. So I was uh, kind of setting myself up there. So I was hopeful. (laughs) Um, Now, in terms of the other um, part of the motivation, so I mentioned this growing focus on sustainable investing. So, you know, part of my motivation was also to kind of dig a little bit further um, into the merits of sustainable investing and before I kind of uh, go any further, let me just uh, first back up and explain, you know, what the term sustainable investing means and how gender lens actually fits into that world. Yeah, because that's something Uh, I didn't know about until I'd heard you speak. Sure. Yeah. So I'm sure many of our listeners, you know, may not have heard this term before of sustainable investing. So essentially sustainable investing is a quickly growing area of interest within financial services and how it differs from traditional Um, investment approaches is that it's taking into account what's called material non-financial information. So Hmm. this means that the information that we're looking at is not necessarily contained in a company's three main financial statements, which of course are the balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow statement. So instead of looking strictly at financial metrics, a sustainable approach is much more holistic and seeks to understand Um, the bigger picture around a company. So looking at things like, you know, how efficiently a company uses natural resources like water and energy. So is the company wasteful? um, Are they very mindful of their environmental impact? There's also a social concern. So looking at the culture of a company, how a company 
uh, treats its employees? Are there a lot of accidents in their factories? Um, and then finally, um, understanding the oversight of a company. So what does the board of directors look like? Who sits on the board? So all of this information um, tends to fall under three main categories, which I've just touched on. So environmental, social, and governance criteria. So those listeners who have heard of sustainable investing, you've also likely heard the term ESG investing. So um, these two terms kind of fit together, and that's what ESG investing is trying to achieve. Now, getting to where gender lens fits in. So let me first say that the environmental and social criteria um, and their material reality to different companies really varies by sector. So for a transportation company, you might be really concerned about um, their emissions and their environmental impacts, whereas for a technology company, you might be much more concerned as an investor about uh, security procedures or employee turnover. But governance is is the factor, that G factor, that really is relevant, um, I would argue, equally across all sectors. And gender diversity fits under this governance category in a sense that we're looking at the gender diversity of a company's executive leadership and board of directors. So that's how gender diversity fits under sustainable and ESG investing. Now, as I mentioned, you know, given that um, this criteria of you know governance and gender diversity is so broadly relevant. This was also a very good case study for me to kind of dig into um, a little bit more about how this non-financial data could affect the performance of a company. Because coming from the investment angle, you know, while some um, people may view ESG, you know, just uh, you know about trying to have a positive social impact or something like that. For me, the, the focus is very much. Um, investment related in terms of understanding, does this criteria help us make better investment decisions? So it's not just, is it really nice to be nice to let women be in charge? It's yes. do they, what is the impact <laughs> exactly. they actually make on the profitability of the companies? Yes. So that was the primary okay. focus. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that was a really good brief uh, description. Uh, I was Mm -hmm. lucky enough to hear Laura go much deeper in all of these topics. But like I said, I'm going to squeeze her into focusing into what she learned (laughs) about the gender lens. So um, what what have you learned about the uh, percentage of women in the workplace across decades? I mean, is it going up? Is it going down? What, What is the overall percentage, like the pool from which companies can actually draw? Sure. So. The percentage of women in the workplace has been rising um, over time. So today, um, you know, women make up about 40%, 47% of the workforce versus just 38% in 1970. And what's interesting is that women are also taking on um, a greater role in terms of contributing to the overall family balance sheet. So mothers are the primary or sole earners for 40% of households with children under 18 today. That compared to just 11% in 1960. So we have seen women's participation in the workforce um, increase just in terms of, you know, volume, but also in terms of, you know, meaningful contribution to uh, household finances as well. What was that number again? Mothers are primary earner for 40%, did you say? Yes, 40% of households with children under 18. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. 
So yeah. this is also interesting to me in that uh, my, my primary focus has been on engineering and computer science uh, and, and tech companies. And I read a statistic recently that the number of women graduating with degrees in computer science and computer information systems has dropped 30% since the 1980s. Wow, that's shocking. Yeah. yeah. And of course, every person I tell that to says, why? And I say, yeah, I'd really <laughs> like to know the answer to that. Um, yeah. I mean, when I was graduating and I graduated in 19, uh, in 1980 and, uh, in, in engineering and I thought, okay, well, we're finally on the upswing, but apparently I was mm-hmm. right at the peak. Um, so I guess it's good they're in other industries, but it does make me wonder whether we can be as mean to the tech companies about the fact that they don't have women executives if we are not there. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely is interesting that some of the gains that we've seen are not necessarily across the board. I mean, when you dig into um, specific occupations, even uh, if you look at, for example, the law profession. So, um, you know, today about, you know, one in three lawyers are women compared to just one in 10 in 1974. But to your point, the, the share of female computer workers um, has actually declined since 1990. So it's interesting that where we've seen advances in some professions, we haven't seen those gains um, in you know technology and STEM professions. It's a great example. So it's not necessarily um, across the board in terms of where we've seen the improvement. That is uh, baffling to me. You know, I, I, when I was younger, I used to think progress always went forward. You know, went up. <laughs> I, I've learned recently that is not always the case. Yeah. So uh, getting into that angle, uh, what about the education levels of women versus men in in, uh, industry in general? Sure. So, um, again, speaking more from a a general perspective, um, the proportion of women with college degrees in the labor force has almost quadrupled since 1970. Wow. And more than 40 percent of women in the labor force had college degrees um, as of 2016 compared with just 11 percent in 1970. So we have um, you know, seeing more women getting college degrees. Um, but it's also, you know, there are gains relative uh, to the male population, which is actually really interesting. Um, women are actually more likely than men now to have earned a bachelor's degree by the age of 29. So there's a 34% oh, wow. chance for women versus 26% chance for men. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, women are actually uh, exceeding men in terms of um, their educational achievement. Uh, and then if you look at, you know, toward, you know, professional school, advanced degrees, uh, women now make up about half of students in law, medical, uh, and graduate business programs up from about 10% in the 1960s. So we have seen women make huge um, strides in terms of educational achievement. Um, but of course, you know, going back to your point, it hasn't necessarily been across every field of study. Um, but just, you know, overall numbers uh, look very encouraging and very encouraging even relative to their, you know, male counterparts of the same age. Maybe the women have said, hey, wait a minute, I think I'll go become a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> Maybe they didn't go <laughs> Maybe, away. They just changed possible. profession, <laughs> <laughs> which does get you back to the to the cultural questions, too, I think. Yeah. Um, I know none of this was in the research, but a lot of people that I've told this particular stat to that I keep quoting is that uh, maybe women look at the whole bro culture of Silicon Valley and say, well, I don't want to go do that nonsense. I'm going to go over here and become a doctor or a lawyer. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it. There's definitely kind of this um, selection uh, factor to all of it, right? And when we talk more uh, later about our research findings in terms of you know how gender diversity affects company performance, there's always this kind of chicken and egg question about you know do women simply just choose to work at better companies, right? So you know, is there this kind of selection factor going on where um, women are looking at the culture of the company, they're looking at diversity statistics, and they're making career choices based on that. I mean, that's certainly a possible explanation, I think. You know, I, I find that uh, an, an interesting question. I think most people must be more circumspect than I am. At, at uh, 22 years old, when I graduated with a degree, I said, hey, these guys will give me a job. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know anything about, you know, culture of companies or anything like that. I said, look, this one's close to home and they offered me this much money. Okay. And then I retired 35 years later from the same company. Yeah, I I mean, we are we are seeing kind of a almost generational shift. I mean, just covering the field of sustainable investing as my focus, um, you know, kind of as I described, sustainable investing does have this kind of values alignment um aspect to it right in terms of thinking about how companies impact the environment and impact society and we are seeing a lot of that demand and growth coming from the millennial generation so i think um you know the next generation is being very thoughtful um perhaps more so than ever before about you know the companies they're going to work at and we see this you know across the board in terms of even wanting to know you know where their food came from you know right when i was growing up i would have never asked my mom you know where did this chicken come from? Or, you know, where was this uh, beef raised? But I think, you know, increasingly we're seeing young people start to ask these kind of questions. So I think I think you bring up a great point. Yeah, that is interesting. So uh, with such higher level of education of women versus men uh, that you've been quoting here, do these percentages stay true as you go up into these key leadership positions? Unfortunately, the short answer is they do not. So, you know, while we have seen a greater participation of women in the workforce, the progress of women getting into those top positions in corporate leadership and even in terms of board representation, you know, it's been kind of stubbornly slow. Um, Today, if we just use the S&P 500 index of some of the largest U.S. companies, uh, we see that, you know, Board seats filled by women, it's about, you know, 20% of board seats, Hmm. around just a little over 25% of uh, women in executive management positions, and just 5% um, of S&P 500 companies have a female CEO. Now, you know, this data has been more widely available, I'd say, over the past, maybe a little less than a decade. So, you know, it's difficult to say, you know, the progress throughout time. I mean, I would say the past, you know, three, four years that I've been tracking this data, that, you know, percentage of women on board number has hovered right around that 20% mark. And I think, you know, given all the attention on, you know, women's rights and gender equality and the Me Too movement um, in the headlines over the past couple of years, you think that the progress would just be um, a lot faster. Um, But unfortunately, you know, it has taken time um, you know, to see, to see these numbers change at a faster pace. I mean, that being said, we are much better off than we were, um, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s, or even, even the nineties. So we're improving, but I think when you see all the attention, the headlines, you think, you know, the numbers must be just kind of ticking upward on a, in a consistent fashion. And, and that's not necessarily the case. I think it's, it's easy to, it's not easy. It's good to be impatient 
on these things. Mm -hmm. But it's also good to step back from time to time and say, so we got the vote. What was it, 100 years ago? You know, (laughs) when you look at it in a a more, uh, you know, glacial timeline, that's pretty amazing. When you look at it as, no, it should be today. That impatience is necessary. We need to keep doing that. But it's also okay to look at the other side, I think. Right. And and oftentimes, you know, you can't necessarily force a change as quickly as you would like. I mean, there's a lot of debate around, you know, whether to have quotas in terms of, you know, number of women that must be on board seats and all these types of things. And, you know, you also have to kind of strike this balance in terms of, um, you know, having having a perception that, you know, these women are in these seats because they belong there. So I think when you start to force, um, when you force things forward, you don't always have, you know, that widespread support. So, I mean, there's a lot of debate around that issue. I mean, that would certainly force progress, progress more quickly. Um, but there really are two sides, uh, to that debate. So I would just kind of throw that out there in terms of thinking about, you know, how quickly you can push the needle. Um, and, and like you said, sometimes it just takes time to, to get to where you want to be. I also am a believer, and I know this isn't anything to do with your research, but that some of this is is something about the way we're raised or the way or possibly the way our brains are wired that women don't always have the the brazen and absolute belief in themselves that they should be in charge. I met two astronomers on this recent trip to to uh, Chile. And um, it was a man and a woman, and they were uh, one was a radio astronomer and was was an optical astronomer. And we were asking, we were just badgering him with all these questions about about the origins of the universe and everything. And um, and they knew a lot, but both of them were very comfortable with saying, "I don't know." And I said, right. "You know what? I love to see is somebody this brilliant as you guys willing to say, I don't know.'" The mm-hmm. man simply smiled when I said that. And you know what the woman said? <laughs> oh, I'm not that smart. <laughs> okay. And I was just like, oh, oh no. sweetie, come on. You're an astro freaking <laughs> physicist. How could you say oh, you're man. not that smart? And it just, it was like th- this whole problem in a nutshell yeah. right there. If you go yeah, into a work every day thinking you're not that smart, you're probably not going to be on the board of directors or president of the company or the CEO, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely, the, I, I think that phenomenon has kind of been referred to as this gender confidence gap. And and you'll have to forgive me because I don't remember the exact kind of percentages here, but there was a really interesting study I remember reading about that looked at uh, males and females applying to jobs. And, you know, let's say a male would apply to a job if he only had some proportion of the list yeah. of qualification, yeah. whereas females would need to have like, I forget if it was 100% 90%. or something close to before they would even apply. So um, that was just a really interesting study that kind of showed um, this confidence gap that you're speaking to in terms of, um, you know, kind of just going for it. Right. I I met a guy early in my career who told me that he saw an ad for a hydraulics engineer and he was not a hydraulics engineer and he applied (laughs) anyway. And he just said, yeah, I figured I could figure it out. He had none of the qualifications. I mean, I I think he was an engineer, but you know, he knew (laughs) nothing, nothing. They said he had to know. Did he already know? And he's like, okay, I can probably do that. (laughs) So there you go. Case in point. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, so back to the point of some of the work you've done, do companies that more successfully incorporate women into their organizations offer better returns to shareholders than those that fail to do so? We believe so. And a lot of it goes back to what I said earlier about companies that are tapping into this, you know, vast educated pool of talented women 
uh, in our view, stand to have a competitive edge over their peers. Uh, so, you know, in the research that we did, uh, we looked at kind of two angles. We looked at the profitability of companies that were more gender diverse, and we also uh, looked at their stock price performance over a six-year period. So essentially what we did, you know, we, we looked at companies that had, you know, three or more women on the board or at least 30% um, of their executive leadership team was made up of women. And we compared the stock price performance over um, a six-year period um, to see whether these this subset of companies um, outperformed. And we found that they did. Um, and we also found that the more gender diverse companies tended to be more profitable over a five-year period. Um, than the less uh, gender diverse companies. Now, that being said, a few limitations um, to the work that we did, uh, one being timeframe. So we went back as far as we could in terms of data availability. Um, as I mentioned earlier, with the rise of sustainable investing, there's, there is increased reporting and transparency from companies because investors are demanding um, this, types of in, this type of information. So, um, you know, we couldn't go back over multiple business cycles to assess, um, unfortunately. And then um, also causations. So mm -hmm. saying, you know, having more women in a company causes the company to outperform that type of um, relationship is difficult to prove statistically um, just because there are so many factors that affect a company's performance. And, you know, in undertaking this work, I read many, many, many studies done over, you know, several decades on this topic. And, you know, I, I didn't find a single study that was able to prove a causal relationship. So what we did in our research paper is, you know, we provided our results, but we also delved into supporting academic studies that looked at uh, social psychology to understand um, how more gender diverse companies might differ uh, from those that are not. And we also looked at studies around um, the influence of gender diversity on board functioning. So mm. the reason we did this was to kind of corroborate our results to say, you know, we can understand why um, having a more gender diverse leadership and board would lead to um, better outcomes. Now, we're not the only uh, institution that's done research on this topic. As I mentioned, there's been a lot of other academic studies. Uh, another one, one of the more recent studies came from the Peterson Institute, uh, where they found that for profitable firms, a move from no female leaders to 30% representation was associated with a 15% increase in net revenue. So hmm. not necessarily looking at profits and stock performance, but looking um, at the revenue angle. So there are a lot of um, different studies out there. And I would say for the skeptics, you know, the pushback will often be that, you know, these studies haven't proved um, causation statistically. And, you know, I, I definitely hear that argument. Um, but I think when you look at all these other um, pieces of evidence surrounding this positive association that's been found time and time again, it really does kind of help to put that story together and to understand the positive influence that gender diversity can have on um, a company's operations and ultimately their bottom line. I really like that you're studying the looking specifically for the causation because looking looking at correlation, as we all know, isn't isn't always the, the get you to the right answer. But it would seem to right. be slightly coincidental that women just gravitate towards board positions on companies that are already profitable. Um, it it seems the, the more simple answer would be that it is the cause. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, there's also, I think we kind of touched on this earlier, this kind of, you know, is it the select, are women simply choosing to work at better (laughs) companies? And I guess for us as investors, we say that even if that's the case, it still tells you something about the company, right? If women (laughs) are choosing to work there. So from our perspective as investors, we're like, well, this is still useful information for us. So. Yeah, either either way, that would still not yeah. matter. Now, I noticed uh, you said specifically thirty percent is the number you were looking at, and I remember reading that there was a, there was a reason that you looked at thirty percent that it, it that it, it just having a woman on the board wasn't necessarily an effective correlation to success. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and I'm sure I don't have to say this to our female listeners on the line because many of us have been in in meetings where we might be the only woman in the room and we know what that's like. So always, um, (laughs) as an engineer, especially coming from your background, (laughs) I'm sure you know what that's like. Um, and there is this concept of kind of critical mass where, uh, you need to get to, um, a certain number of women, uh, in the room, which is why we chose this three or, um, you know, roughly 30% mark. Uh, to actually have the woman's voice heard in the same kind of, you know, level or same um, taken as seriously as any other uh, voice in the room. And at that point, once you reach that kind of critical mass, the comment being made from the females no longer just seen as, you know, the woman's point of view. Um, It's just taken um, the same way as any other opinion. And, you know, one example that I thought was really interesting to bring up, not necessarily from our study, but I remember when I was uh, working on the research paper, I read an interesting article about uh, former President Obama's female staffers, um, and they actually adopted a meeting strategy that they called amplification, hmm. where if a female made a key point, another woman would repeat it. Given its credit, giving credit to its original um, <laughs> author speaker, just to make sure that you know the point was heard um, and it was attributed to the person who first um, said it. So I think you know. So for women, instead of just, just saying it for me, themselves, saying right, Caroline exactly. makes a really good point. Exactly, and uh-huh. I think you know, and that can actually it doesn't have to be another you know female. In this case, it was like women backing up women, but you know even. I guess this is just kind of a piece of advice that I'll throw out there or, you know, something that I think people could do is just to kind of use this technique, even if it's like a male, another male on your team to support you, because that's actually helped me tremendously, too. Like if I make a comment in a meeting, let's say it's I'm the only woman in the room. If, you know, someone I work with repeats the comment and says, you know, that's a great point that Laura made. I agree with that. That actually helps a lot to get focus on the comment. Otherwise, Sometimes you say a comment and then it either gets lost or someone else repeats it, you know, a little while later and they get the credit for it. So um, I thought that technique was was really interesting and kind of fit with the with the research that I had seen. I also use that as a technique to help someone I'm having a conversation with be able to hear me. Is yes. <laughs> if, if I, and, and I don't I don't fake it. If you say something right. that I do think is really smart, I'll say Hey, you know, Laura, that's a really good point. When you said blah, blah, right. blah, that that is something I really resonate to. And and now your mind is just open to hearing what I have to say. But exactly. But, and, and again, I never, ever say it if it isn't true. I'm not going to I'm not right. going to be full of anything. You know, I'm, I'm going to only do it if it's true. Um, right. But that, that is a good point. I mean, and women yeah. can do it for men, too. 
Exactly. <laughs> yep. It can go both ways. So right. I just thought that was, I remember that came, that story came out in the news like, right around the same time I was writing the report. So it always kind of stuck with me um, as a technique to kind of help women get to that, you know, critical mass level, even if they don't necessarily have the bodies in the room. Yeah. So is there anything in particular you think is is caused as a dynamic that changes in a group if they are more diverse? So I think there's, um, you know, a few uh, different things that happen. So, you know, one is that, you know, social psychology studies tell us that diverse groups tend to make better decisions because there's less group think. Um, when you have a lot of similar people in the room, uh, I think it's been found that, you know, individuals will prioritize being liked over coming up with the right answer or solution. Um, and and, you know, that group thing tends to override uh, rational decision making. So I think diversity can definitely help to, you know, bring new perspectives to the table and come to, uh, you know, better, more well thought out outcomes. And I, you could say that for, you know, other types of diversity as well. It doesn't necessarily have to just be um, gender diversity. I think life experience um, also adds a lot to the table. Um, if you think about just women in their daily lives, you know, they tend to make more than 70% of household spending decisions. So if you're running a consumer company, uh, it would be in your best interest <laughs> to have uh, more women in your executive leadership teams or, you know, on the board kind of making decisions for the company. Um, and also um, another a uh, study looked at, um, you know, gender diversity specifically and, you know, the influence on what's called collective intelligence. Hmm. So collective intelligence is kind of um, the ability of a group to complete um, a variety of tasks. And it was found that the collective intelligence of a group is more than just the sum of the people in the group. And it's actually not... Um, correlated with the average or maximum intelligence of the individual group members, but with three other factors that I'll just quickly touch on. So the three factors that collective intelligence um, was associated with was social sensitivity of group members, um, equality in conversation turn-taking, and the number of women in a group. Now, these factors are not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, as you can imagine, women tended to exhibit... Um, you know, more of this social s sensitivity, mm -hmm. um, also more equality in conversational turn-taking. So um, I think that kind of partially explains this positive relationship between women um, and overall group or uh, collective intelligence. Oh, that's really, really interesting. I, I back you up on, on something that you said about um, making better decisions. I, I worked for Raytheon for 35 years, and at one point they forced me into being the head of the diversity council, and I went kicking and screaming, didn't want to do it, blah, blah, blah. I was supposed to be a two-year <laughs> assignment. I did it for five years. Probably some of the most important work I did in the company was as head of the diversity council. But one of the reasons I began to believe was they told me that diversity wasn't about being nice to people and giving, you know, it's nice to give the uh, uh, Native Americans jobs or, you know, it wasn't any crap like right. that. It was, we will make more money because we will make better products because we have diverse a diverse workforce. And when exactly. I when I got that behind me, I was like, oh, well, now I can embrace this. You know, it's not all touchy-feely stuff. It's, we want to make right. more money. 
we want to make better products. And the only way to do that is to have diverse opinions. And and I remember one of our local presidents saying at one point he was furious because uh, some just tragic error had been made in, in in a design project. And he said, I know for a fact that there were 25-year-old people in the room right there who thought, wow, that's not going to work. That's going to be stupid. And they they either didn't say anything or they weren't heard when they did. And we have to listen to everybody. And it was just right, exactly. It, it was right exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah. And it's all types of diversity. So even age diversity can make a difference. And yeah, I mean, you really ultimately have to think about who are your consumers and customers? I mean, we're serving most companies are serving, you know, a diverse customer base, diverse client base. So if the if the leadership in your company doesn't match the consumer base that you're serving, you're bound to have a mismatch in terms of, you know, product design or, you know, marketing efforts or whatever it might be. Um, it's, it's, you know, it goes even beyond just groupthink, but just, you know, bringing a perspective to the table that's going to resonate with who your ultimate um, end users are. Yeah, something as simple as, oh, wait, how would a left-hander use that? Or exactly. what about somebody yeah. who's colorblind? You know, those things come yeah. in. So are, mm-hmm. are, we've been talking about all the amazing benefits. You should have women all over the place because it's the greatest thing in the world. But are there any downsides to gender diversity in a group that you found in your research? Not necessarily specific to gender diversity, but just in general, you know, when you have a more diverse group, um, you know, the same study that I've been discussing, they they did find that there could be more conflict in a group, especially um, when there was a high level of what they called value diversity. Hmm. And value diversity means that the participants have different ideas about what the group's real kind of task or goal or mission should be. So um, it's important that, yes, you want a diverse group of individuals, but you want to make sure that uh, there is a common goal shared across the participants in a group and that there's clarity on what's, um, you know, what the desired outcome is. And, you know, if, if caution is taken to kind of mitigate any conflict that might ar- arise in that arena, you can more fully reap the benefits of, you know, the kind of informational and skills diversity of the group. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. So how would a company go about filling board seats of corporations with women if they usually get board seats from CEOs? And there's only 5% of Fortune 500, or was it the, um, I thought it was Fortune 500 CEOs, S&P 500 CEOs are women. If they're only 5% of women, where are you supposed to go get the women to fill those board seats? Yes. So this is a great question that comes up a lot. Um, And my answer would be is that, you know, to your point, if we continue to use the same criteria, which is that. We only want board members who've been board members before. Then we're going to perpetuate um, the problem at hand. So um, I believe that there absolutely are qualified women out there. Um, the educational statistics speak for themselves. Um, it it it's it's about putting in that extra effort to identify and empower uh, diverse professionals both, you know, gender and otherwise with the right skill sets to apply their knowledge and skills in new domains and kind of breaking up that old boys club uh, mentality. Uh, And actually, I would I would argue that, you know, the bars, since it's kind of been set higher for women, um, you know, some studies have been done that compared uh, male directors and female directors and found that, you know, female board directors actually tend to have more university degrees 
They're more likely to hold advanced degrees. Um, they're more likely to have strength in marketing and sales and to come from international and non-business backgrounds. So, you know, they bring a different skill set to the table and are often very highly educated. Um, so there's definitely, you know, benefits to be had um, to having, you know, female board directors. And a lot of them have had to kind of, like I said, pass over a higher bar. So um, it's identifying those women that have those those right skills, even if they haven't been a board member before, and bringing them into um, a new type of position where their skills can be fully utilized. Hmm. Uh, is there any research that identifies different expertise fields of knowledge of women versus men? There are. There was actually a really interesting study done um, just back in 2015. And what they did, the researchers looked at um, 16 critical skill sets that you would expect or you would like to see on a corporate board. And what they found is of the 16, um, about six of those critical skill sets were more prevalent or more dominant in women versus men. and Four of those six were um, were underrepresented on corporate boards today, meaning that boards um, were lacking this skill set or knowledge base um, with their current uh, composition. So some examples of these four, so human resources, um, only 29%, and they were using the S&P uh, 600 as, as the the index they were studying. So only 29% of the boards um, had human resource skills, 33% risk management, 33% sustainability, and 48% uh, political and government knowledge. Now this compares to, you know, over 97% of the boards had um, the skill sets of finance, accounting, and operations represented, which tend to be, you know, more prevalent in males. So mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is that by incorporating more women in the board, you could actually round out and fill in some of these um, skill gaps that exist on corporate boards today. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm such a an engineering bigot. I think everybody on the board should be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> what all engineering this- wasn't one of the sixteen critical skill sets, <laughs> but maybe it should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the whole problem. Clearly. <laughs> My perspective is slightly twisted on this. Uh, so how do boards function differently when they have female directors? What, what, is, the, what is the result that you've been able to, to measure and find in your research? Yeah, so there's been a number of different studies on this topic. I, I would say that, you know, one of my favorite findings is that um, on more gender diverse boards, uh, attendance rates are higher for board meetings. And it's not just because women, you know, have higher attendance rates, but also male directors have fewer absences um, on gender balanced boards. So I'm not sure why that is, um, but we definitely see um, increased attendance, uh, even when men know that the women are going to be there. So um, I thought that was a really interesting finding. Yeah, Um, we we also see um, things like, you know, greater participation and decision making. Um, tougher monitoring. Um, there's also been studies that find that found that you know gender balance board had fewer cases of bribery, corruption, and fraud, uh, fewer <sighs> lawsuits overall. So um, there does tend to be this relationship between you know gender diversity and kind of tougher, more stringent monitoring, uh, kind of better board functioning. So uh, I think you know these stories to me, as I mentioned earlier, really 
kind of corroborate and kind of, um, you know, add credibility to the results that the overall results that we found in terms of, you know, more gender diverse companies outperforming um, or are being more profitable. Um, because, you know, these results, you can kind of draw that direct line between diversity and, and some of these outcomes. So I think that really helps to kind of solidify the story to me. Yeah. And like you say, it, it doesn't actually matter whether it's the cause. It is the, true. Right. <laughs> and so right. that that does matter. Uh, because I don't have to back anything up, I say, with research, um, my first thought was, well, maybe the men feel like mom is watching, you know, it's like my mom will be disappointed in me. The women are watching me. They know I can't get away with this because they're watching. But uh, maybe <laughs> like I said, I don't have to back anything up with research. <laughs> well, Laura, this has been really, really interesting. I, I uh, enjoyed uh, reading the the research that you've done and you've been able to elaborate on a lot of these uh, conclusions and and maybe questions for the future. Like you said, I, th- I think the, the research needs to continue over time to get more uh, life cycles, uh, financial life cycles through, correct? Yep. Yep. And I think we're going to, you know, continue as, as sustainable investing kind of grows uh, in popularity. We're going to see more and more uh, kind of pressure on companies to report more data. So I think the the transparency is increasing. Uh, so we'll have, you know, even more insight into, you know, not just statistics like number of women on the board or number of women in management, but, you know, more information around, you know, policies and culture that supports women. Um, You know, that data is more difficult to come by still. So I think we're just going to increasingly have more information about companies to make more informed investment decision. And, And to me, that's really, you know, the heart of sustainable investing, both gender lens and, you know, the, the broader set of opportunities is, being able uh, to use or have more information at our disposal to better understand a company more holistically, going beyond the financial information to to really make better long term investments. Wow, that's that's very cool. Well, I want to I want to thank you for coming on the show, and we'll have a link to your uh, your research paper that we've been referring to uh, for the future. And I I really appreciate you coming on and uh, and joining the show. Great, thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad-supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you'd like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSillaCastaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSillaCastaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.